like Justin said, not sure if you've noticed, but I am pregnant. <laughs> My due date is in just 13 short days, so it's go time. So if there's doctors in the room, <laughs> things get weird up here. I'm calling out for you. <laughs> it's an exciting and fun time for sure, but have you ever noticed how much negativity surrounds pregnancy and motherhood and parenting? For example, let me just rattle off a few things that I've heard during this pregnancy and then also with Baylor's. Say goodbye to sleep, you'll never sleep again. There goes your freedom. Yeah, your body, it will never be the same. Let me guess, you're so uncomfortable, isn't this miserable? But this isn't just limited to pregnancy, right? We see it in all aspects of mothering. Let me just show you a few memes that I found easily on my Instagram. This first one says, boxed wine is just a juice box for mom. <laughs> the next one says, I'm afraid you have what is known as children. <laughs> and then lastly, moms often start the day feeling like this and end the day feeling like this. <laughs> now hear me out. Some of those things are funny because they have truth to them. And I think we should acknowledge the hard parts of parenting. But I do believe that God's plan for motherhood is far greater than what society is trying to tell us. I believe biblical motherhood is redeeming and sanctifying, hopeful and holy. And today, Lindsay and I are honored and privileged to share with you just some, a few aspects of what we've learned about God's design for motherhood and mothering that is found in the scriptures. That's right. And if you were here last week when Justin kicked off the Family Discipleship Series, you might recall him reading a familiar passage to us from Deuteronomy 6. It's going to be a guiding passage for this series, so I'm going to read it to you this morning again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk with them of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So we are always to have the Lord and his word on our hearts and our minds, so that as we are going along in our everyday life, we can impart these truths to our children. So of course, this morning, we're going to look at motherhood through the lens of the word. And we're going to use this term, biblical motherhood. And we know that in the Bible, there's plenty of parenting failures. So we're not talking about those instances of biblical motherhood. What we're talking about with biblical motherhood is the good and the God-honoring examples that we're going to talk through this morning. And we're going to work our way from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we know that when it comes to mothering, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. We know that a lot of you are mothering in a variety of capacities in this room. So we are talking to those of you that have children in your home right now, whether they're your biological kids or your stepkids or your kids through adoption or foster care. We are talking to the women that are still mothering their adult children and coming along grandchildren and women that are coming along kids here at TCC or the kids next door to you in your neighborhood. All women have mothering opportunities. So our goal is to highlight several different women in the Old and the New Testament. It's gonna be a little different. Usually we go through one passage really deeply on a Sunday, but we're gonna cover a lot of ground here and we're gonna move a little fast. So I'm gonna start talking a little fast. <laughs> or maybe not. So Genesis chapter three is where we're gonna start. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there and Molly and I will have the scriptures on the screen as well that we cover. So our first example, 
of biblical motherhood this morning is Eve, the first mother, right? And Genesis 3 is often commonly called the fall. Here we see the first instance of sin enter the world. And as it does, God's perfectly designed creation starts to falter and fall. Let me give you this visual from my own childhood. So when my sisters and I were little, we loved going to grandma's house. And grandma just had the toys that my dad and his siblings had played with. So it was a lot of marbles, a lot of tea parties, and a lot of dominoes at grandma's house. We had no clue how to play dominoes with the actual numbers on the dominoes. We liked to stack them up, right? That's the best way to play dominoes. You stack them up in this tightly designed sequence so that when you hit that first one and it tips over, it knocks over everything else accordingly. And that is the ultimate picture of how one action can affect everything around it. And the first sin, or that first domino that we see set off in Scripture, is set off by Eve. Now, God had specifically stated that Adam and Eve could eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan was crafty, and he questioned, and he twisted God's words. And Eve was misled, and she sinned, and she took the fruit, and she ate it, and then she shared it with her husband. And because of this, we know that the serpent would be cursed now, and that there would be a strife and struggle between the serpent and the woman, and also between the serpent and the woman's offspring. And the woman was told that now her pain and childbearing would be multiplied. And also Adam was told that the ground would be cursed, and so he would toil and he would struggle, and his work would be hard labor. But of course, God also left a message of hope hidden in this curse. And so we see that one day, the woman's offspring would come and crush the head of the serpent. It was a prophetic word concerning a savior that was going to come, a promise that one day Jesus would come and conquer this serpent. And this is the greatest answer that we have to our salvation and deliverance in this passage. But I want to point out another smaller but beautiful provision that God left here in Genesis 3. The very next verse after that curse, after that punishment, is verse 20. And it says, The man called the wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, the name Eve, it means life. And Gloria Furman has this book called Missional Motherhood. And in that book, she says, Adam believed God's promise by faith. The man and the woman would continue to be co-heirs, ambassadors, image bearers of God. Adam gave his wife a name that was full of hope, a name full of faith in God's future grace. Death entered creation because of their sin, but new life entered creation because of grace. And Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of that grace and that new life that one day would come through his own mother. But there are also a million little ways that God has invited women into mothering and caring and nurturing the life around them. It's a unique calling. It shows his restorative nature through women. Mothering, nurturing, carefully tending to the life around us to help it grow and flourish. This nurturing revives life in a fallen world, and we desperately need it in our sinful humanity. Eve is an example of biblical motherhood. As we continue on in this biblical overview of mothering, we find ourselves in a familiar passage in Exodus. So please turn over with me to Exodus chapter 1. Oftentimes, I think we can focus on the miracle of Moses' life without recognizing the bravery and courage and strength of these women that were surrounding him. 
as we read the passage that many of you are familiar with or have heard before or have seen in the fabulous Prince of Egypt movie. Yes. Focus on the women in this story and especially notice their bravery, courage, and strength in the face of danger. So let's set the scene before we head into the passage. The book of Exodus begins with us learning about the Hebrews that made their way to Egypt. Do you remember Joseph, the Technicolor Dreamcoat? He was in Egypt along with some of his brothers and their households. In Exodus 1, we get a picture of what life looked like during those years before Moses' arrival on the scene. Exodus 1.7 says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the Lord was filled with them, so that the land was filled with them. Excuse me. Before this time, it seems as though the Egyptians and the Hebrews had this friendly working relationship. But as the Hebrew people became more prosperous and their population grew, a new king enters the scene feeling threatened, worried that the Hebrews would take over. This fear led him to devise a plan that would make Egypt a house of oppression, as one commentator called it, for all the Hebrew people. So rather than living freely and openly with the Egyptians, we see that this new king and the people of Egypt ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, enter Moses, and let's look at these three different women that show up. Exodus 1, 15 through 17. Then the king of Egypt, so this king who decided to make Hebrews their slaves, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So these are the first women to take notice of, these midwives who feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. They acted courageously, disobeying the Pharaoh's orders by not killing the male babies, putting their own lives on the line, even for the sake of these little ones, preserving life, acting with bravery, even in the face of danger. The story continues on, and we see yet another woman show up with intense bravery and remarkable faith in God. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed him among the reeds by the river bank. So the second woman to notice is this Levite woman, Moses' mother, Jochebed. Can you imagine the fear she must have experienced hiding her child away for three months, worrying if she would get caught? And then the bravery that it must have took to put her child into a basket and put him among the reeds and twigs and marsh of a river. Commentators say that this reed, these reeds were really thick, and so she put it in there so that the baby would not get submerged and head down the river, but that he'd be given another chance at life, hoping that someone would come and find him. Moses... Uh, in Hebrews 11, we see that by, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born 
because they saw that he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Faith and bravery at work in a mom's heart. Now this beautiful and compelling story ends with yet another woman's response with bravery. Let's continue on. Verse 5 says, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went away and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So when the woman took the child and nursed him, and listen to this, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So this third and final woman we see is Pharaoh's daughter. Now, it is unclear how she managed to keep Moses as her own and welcome him into the palace. But nevertheless, the scriptures say she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Other translations say that she had compassion on him. She knew he was a Hebrew boy and deliberately disobeyed her father's order to kill this Hebrew boy and kept him in her home. She didn't only spare his life as an infant when she was little, but when he was brought back as an older child, adopted him as her son. Her son, a story of adoption into the very family that was seeking to kill him. Bravery, courage, strength. I love this because in these three, in these passages, we see three different types of mothering roles acting in all different yet courageous ways. Midwives, a biological mother, and then an adoptive mother, all responding to Pharaoh's order of destruction and death with life-giving courage and bravery. The women in Exodus are examples of biblical motherhood. Now we're going to look at two examples of motherhood in the New Testament. And we would be amiss if we did not stop and look at Jesus' own mother, Mary. The earliest account we see of Mary's yet life is in Luke chapter 1, when she's visited by the angel Gabriel to tell her that she is going to be the mother of Jesus. And it's a passage that's really familiar with us. A lot of times we read it at Christmas time, and I think with these familiar passages, we lose a lot of the wonder and the miracle So let's just imagine in our mind's eye this morning what this encounter really would have looked like. First, consider that Mary is just an ordinary girl. She's a peasant girl, maybe around 15. Bible scholars believe she was a teenager. And so she's really just like, in a lot of ways, you and I, an ordinary person. But let's also consider that she, in this moment, is talking to an angel, which is incredible, right? I don't even think I can fathom what that would feel like or look like to be in that room. And the angel Gabriel is coming to tell her that she is going to have a child as a virgin, also extraordinary. But then listen to the way that he describes this child. It will be the son of the Most High, the heir to the throne of David, the one who would reign over all of the tribes of Israel. 
because Mary is about to conceive the savior of the world. All of this is absolutely incredible. He's like, you got it, Mary, Godspeed, good luck, here we go, right? And I think in that moment, I probably would have passed out, but we look at Mary and we look at her response and it's thoughtful and it's humble and it's mature. And we see her willingly submit to God's plans. She says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now jump over to the next chapter in Luke. Luke chapter two, we see Mary as a mother of a 12-year-old preteen Jesus. And they're traveling home from the Passover in Jerusalem when Mary and Joseph notice, where is Jesus? He's not here with us. And so they turn around and they head back to look for him. And the Bible tells us that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding, at his answers. So moms of teenagers in the room, picture this. If your child went missing, would you find him here at the church building, (laughs) talking to the elders, asking Justin and Jerry these deep theological questions, and then dazzling Scott and David (laughs) with their answers and responses? It's crazy, but on a serious note, we see Mary and she comes and basically her response is, Jesus, where have you been? Why did you do this to us? We were worried, sick, we were looking everywhere for you. That's her initial response. But then we get this picture that as time goes on, the puzzle pieces are starting to fit together because it says that Mary treasured these things in her heart. Again, we see that she's thoughtful, she's humble, she's submitting to the Lord as she goes. Now fast forward again to John chapter two. We're at a wedding, Jesus is 30 years old. He's a grown man with his friends, the disciples at a wedding in Cana, and his mom is there as well. And she sees that the host has run out of wine. And so she enlists Jesus for help. And in this moment, we're reminded that parenting doesn't end when we have adult children, right? Here's Mary, she's still mothering Jesus, he's 30. And at first, it looks like Jesus isn't going to respond because it's not his time for this kind of public display of his true identity. But his mom proceeds And then ultimately, Jesus provides them with probably the best wine that they have ever tasted. And I love this because in this moment, we see the will of a human and the will of God working together. There's moments in scripture where we see someone make a request that is so in line with God and his nature and his character that God responds and says, yes. Mary knew Jesus intimately. I would argue that she knew Jesus better than anybody else on the planet knew Jesus because she was his mom. She had nursed him, taught him to walk and talk, raised him from a boy to a man. She knew all of his abilities. She knew what he was capable of. She knew that he was the son of God, and she was the first human being to pull that out of him as his mom. Finally, let's consider Mary with Jesus in his final moments at the cross, and she had followed her son to his death, even when many of his disciples at that point had fled and left. And I would say that in that moment, just like the disciples, I'm sure Mary had doubts and wonder, not understanding how would Jesus's mission, who was supposed to be have an eternal kingdom, how is it coming to this kind of end? But she's still there, she's faithful. I would guarantee she had worries as a mom in that moment, but she's there at the cross, faithfully surrendered to the will of Christ and also the will of her father. Biblical motherhood requires submission to God.
So we'll end our flyover of biblical mothering in 2 Timothy with a, per, with a focus on personal and sincere faith. We see this personal connection and encouragement specifically as it relates to motherhood in verse 1-5. So in the book of 2 Timothy, Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy while he is in prison in Rome. The ESV study Bible says that 2 Timothy is very personal as would be expected in a final letter to a close friend. And it's in this little bit of scripture that I think we can often pass over or skip because it has names that are foreign to us or that we don't understand. But I really want us to take some time, slow down, and focus on these names because I think it has an important information about what it looks like in regards to mothering that I really don't want us to miss this morning. So, Paul writes to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you. A sincere faith, first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice. Sincerity here can be described as genuine and without hypocrisy. Timothy's grandmother Lois and mother Eunice had a sincere and genuine faith that I am sure impacted Timothy and his decision to follow Christ in his later years. One commentator called it a heritage of faith, and I love that language. Children will be shaped and molded by generations that have come before them. And, it's something, and it isn't just something that is passed down and then you're off the hook and mothering is done. It just looks different later in life. For those of you that have one, you know that a grandparent is an active and engaged role in a child's life. I'll share more about that with, with you in the application portion, but what I just want us to notice going forward is that mothering requires a genuine faith that is honest and forthright and one that hopefully and Lord willingly will go down for generations to come. So we see Lois and Eunice as examples of biblical motherhood. Now we made it, you guys. We covered a lot of ground and we've made it to our so what moment. So what? So what does this mean for us in this room as women, as mothers, as foster moms, as grandmas, aunties, as women coming alongside the kids in our community group? How do we mother in all of these capacities within God's great design? We know that this list is not exhaustive, but Molly and I saw four virtues that we want to point out today. We believe that biblical motherhood requires, first, nurturing, second, bravery, third, submission to God, and a sincere and genuine faith. So let's look at each of these individually. First, biblical motherhood requires nurturing. Remember that we saw back in Genesis that Eve was given a name that meant life, and she was given this name because she would be the mother of all living. Eve was given the task to bring new life into the world and to nurture and care for that life. This nurturing care, I think a lot of times, is the essence of mothering. And it doesn't mean that you have to be this overly gentle, soft-spoken woman that loves babies. We love those women too, they're very nurturing. But nurturing, if you don't fit that mold, I just wanna say it can look like a lot of different things, right? Nurturing is teaching our children, teaching them how to read, teaching them how to fix a car, teaching them how to drive a car, teaching them how to apply for their first job. Nurturing can also look like discipline because we want to raise our children and teach them what is right from what is wrong, whether it's in our home or here helping out on a Sunday with TCC kids. Mm -hmm. 
and nurturing is speaking life-giving words of encouragement through our experiences to anyone that is younger in our lives. I want to say that do you remember those memes that Molly showed at the beginning? There's a reason that they exist. Nurturing requires a lot of patience and a lot of giving of ourselves, which is really, really tiring. And so I want to be honest, yeah, I see some moms nodding their head. Sometimes we're gonna blow this big time. I will say that my biggest regrets or my biggest heartaches are the times when I've got angry and overly emotional when I have not looked like the mom in the situation, where I've lost my self-control with my kids. You are human, this will happen, okay? Sometimes we'll make some mistakes. Sometimes we'll make great choices that are good and nurturing, but sometimes we won't. And I just wanna say, it's never too late to right a wrong because we are mothering in light of Christ and his character, his goodness, his patience, his forgiveness, and his mercy. So no matter how old or how young your children are, you can still come back and nurture that relationship now. It's never too late to offer this kind of nurturing in your mothering. And in our mothering, there is a restorative power, and it comes not through strength and strong-arming and force, but it comes through this careful nurturing of the lives around us. Biblical motherhood requires nurturing. Remember the Exodus story? The women in there that we pointed out. I think it's fair to say that without their acts of bravery, there would be no Moses. And can you imagine that? Moses, who led God's people out of slavery, Moses, who's one of our most foundational religious people, would not have existed without bravery and courage and strength of these women. Now, I think it's fair to say that it doesn't look like uh, Egypt right now, and we don't have a pharaoh ruling, but I think that this truth can still remain the same. Biblical motherhood requires bravery. Maybe bravery looks like getting off of social media and the mindless scroll that gets us through the day. Philosopher Simone Weil said that attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. Maybe bravery for you is being generous with your time, slowing down, giving your children your undivided attention. Maybe bravery looks like sitting down with your teenager and having a hard conversation about their friend group or their choices that they're making. Maybe bravery looks like saying yes to serving in table kids. <laughs> Even when the thought of being with children feels overwhelming and exhausting. Maybe bravery looks like advocating for your child who is struggling at school and needs you to speak up on their behalf. Maybe bravery is saying yes to adoption, foster care, becoming a safe family's host family, because you desire to live out this role as mom to kids in crisis. And then maybe bravery looks like showing up to your community group one night and offering to partner with the parents in your group and discipling of their kids and reading a Bible story all together. For me, bravery looks like welcoming this second baby into our home. Honestly, I did not love the newborn stage. I was pretty anxious. I was constantly Googling. <laughs> I found this pseudo comfort in my phone and what my phone had to say, so much so that my husband Daniel would take my phone away from me at night. 
Maybe you've experienced this too, those big feelings, that crippling depression, the overwhelm of not being able to care for your kids. Bravery, for me, looks like asking the Lord to calm my anxiety, to give me wisdom before heading on to a mom blog, or heaven forbid, WebMD. Just don't, don't do it, just don't do it. It looks like trusting the Lord and his deep love for my child rather than a dependence on my own control. Mothering requires bravery, but the beauty of it is that we don't have to do it alone. God is with us in this. Just like he provided for Moses, he will provide for you too. Be brave and trust in a God that provides. So we've seen that biblical motherhood requires nurturing, bravery, and now third, biblical motherhood requires submission through God to God. We saw this through the example of Mary as she submitted to God's call on her life to bring the Messiah into the world and to raise him up, not just as her own, but under the authority of her heavenly father. Mary knew who her God was, and because she knew and trusted him, she was able to bend her will towards his will. And submission to God is really hard if we're honest. It requires sacrifice or at the very least, for us to hold things a lot looser than we're usually comfortable with. Sometimes God's plans for motherhood don't look like the plans that we had hoped for or that we had expected for our own lives. Maybe it's because motherhood is overwhelming, it's more challenging than you had expected it to be. Maybe it's because your child has a challenging personality or a disability, or they've walked through some kind of trauma that you just did not feel prepared for. Maybe you have longed for children of your own, but for whatever reason, God has not brought you those children. How do we submit to God in these hard things surrounding mothering? If motherhood is overwhelming and challenging, I would say, I would urge you to seek out support. And this can look like a variety of things. Lean into the Lord, ask him what that help might look like. But a couple things we have at the church. One, if you just need friendship, if you're just lonely, if you just need some mom camaraderie, come to the play date. There's a play group, moms and kids come once a week here at the church building. Also, if you have a kiddo with a disability, there is a support group of moms that meet once a month here, and it's beautiful. I've heard incredible things about the support and the love that is offered through this group. They meet once a month here, and Molly could give you more information on that. And if you long for children, but God hasn't provided them the way that you had hoped for, I would ask you to open your heart to the Lord and ask him to see the mothering opportunities around you that he does want you to step into and that he has provided for your life. And I realize that might be asking a lot right now. That might feel impossible. But I know that the enemy will build walls around our hearts and keep us keeping things that are hurt, feel hurtful at arm's length. But I also know that God can bring healing and restoration in really unconventional ways. Mm-hmm. And I know that each of you women in this room have value to add to the lives around you, mm-hmm. to the lives of small children or to the lives of adult children. So I would ask you to respond 
to whatever that call for mothering is that God can provide for you. Mm -hmm. And I will not pretend that it is easy, (laughs) but biblical motherhood requires our submission to God. And finally, the fourth virtue. Biblical motherhood requires a sincere and genuine faith. I love that we see in scriptures the mention of grandmothers and mothers. I would imagine that Paul didn't have to include that in the letter, but he did, and I think it gives us a little picture of what this looks like. Biblical motherhood requires a sincere and genuine faith. When I first read this, my mind went to my own grandma, Mimi. I am fortunate enough to have both my grandparents following the Lord, but I was especially influenced and impacted by Mimi. I spent most days with her. She lived right down the road from us, and in true Mimi fashion, she would play with us for hours. We would make stores and do dress-up and do arts and crafts, but in every instance, she would always, always, always weave in Jesus through the books she read to us, the songs we sang, the prayers that she prayed over us, Jesus was always there. In fact, to this day, I am 32 years old, I have never received a card, birthday, Christmas, Valentine's Day, without Mimi writing on the side, Molly, always love Jesus. Her sincere and genuine faith shaped me, and it molded me, and it inspired me. Ask anyone around me, I always say I want to be like Mimi when I grow up. I want to be funny and kind, hospitable, but most importantly, I want my kids and my grandkids and hopefully my great-grandkids to say that first and foremost, I loved Jesus and that he was everything to me. Now, I know this is not the case for everyone in the room, We live in a fallen world. We talked about that this morning. There's family dysfunction and heartbreak, but there's two things that I want you to hear from me as I wrap up. You can be that grandma. You can be a Grandma Lois to your family. You can change the trajectory and pass down a heritage of faith to your family. And secondly, you are a part of a faith-filled family with so many amazing Grandma Loises. This week, I reached out to some of our TCC matriarchs, and they gave us a list, a beautiful list of wisdom and encouragement, and we've put together a sheet, like so much that I couldn't even fit it all in this sermon. (laughs) It was so good. So we have made a list, a piece of paper for you to grab on your way out, stick it in your Bible, Put it on your mirror, put it in your car, and remember that you have a handful of grandmas cheering you on. They are with you in this journey of motherhood. They love you, they care for you, and they are cheering you on. Biblical motherhood requires a sincere and genuine faith. Now, as we wrap up, we have one more passage that we're going to look at today, and it's in Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed in the sun, with a moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in the pains and agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his, feet, and on his seven diadems. 
His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Okay, you might be asking yourself, what is happening? (laughs) Are we really, are Molly and Lindsay really going to end this sermon on mothering with this crazy dragon imagery? Yeah, we really are. And I'll tell you why. It's because as believers raising children today, we are aware that we're trying to raise our kids in the face of an enemy who we know can feel like this dragon especially after a week like this week where we've been watching the news and we've been wrestling with heartache and horror watching another school shooting. And we look at the Lord and we say, how, God? How do we raise our kids in the face of so much evil? But then I look at a passage like this and I think, look at the strength, the power, the protection from God provided for this woman. And I am reminded that God's spirit is living within us, and that is more powerful than the enemy who's living in this world. And so through nurturing, bravery, our submission to God, and genuine faith, we can pass those attributes on to our kids and raise these kids to be mighty and to do amazing things for God. Our children were born for this day. Our children were born for 2022. I know this, I say this with certainty because we are alive in this room and so this is the day that the Lord has appointed for us and for our kids. God holds all of our children in his hands and he has them. Isaiah 40, 11 says, he will gently guide those with young. So mamas, God is guiding you as you are guiding your children. He will lead you through the things that he is calling you to do. And this doesn't mean that motherhood's going to be easy. In fact, I'm sorry, it's going to be very hard because it's refining, it's sanctifying work, and it requires a lot of perseverance. But biblical motherhood, it equips us to walk boldly because Christ is our guide and he has already made the way to victory. So as we come to the tables today, may we be fully aware of this victory and know that whatever circumstance we face, whatever child we need a little extra measure of patience for, whatever shortcomings that we have, Christ holds the keys to every mothering need that we have. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for each and every woman in this room, and Father God, I pray a blessing over all of the different mothering capacities. Would you bless the work of our hands, Lord? Would you strengthen our hearts for the things that you have called us for? Lord, we pray that we would mother from a place of our greatest hopes. And Lord, you are our greatest hope. So Lord, would we mother from that place with great hope, bravery, perseverance, rather than looking around and seeing our worst fears. Lord God, would you equip these women? Would you give us a sisterhood? Would we mother together? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.